Hello and welcome to the Editor's Overview podcast for the April 2023 edition of Practical Neurology, the journal with a difference. And uh, it's the two editors, Phil Smith and Geraint Fuller. Geraint, we've been discussing before Practical Neurology. It's different from other journals. It's practical. Why do we call it Practical Neurology? Well, it's always quite entertaining when you try and suggest what a journal might be called or indeed what any organisation is called. So, for example, uh, there's a very eminent journal called Brain, which uh, astonishingly publishes quite a lot of stuff about peripheral nerve and muscle without any sense of irony at all. And um, our sister journal, the Journal of Neurology, Neurosurgery and Psychiatry, um, broadly speaking, trying to make certain that it's not leaving anyone out. Practical neurology does what it says on the tin. It it aims to just try and help people in the clinic practically without too much complication. Is a fair comment? I think it's a very fair comment. And and being practical, we would, for example, usually not favour novelty. And because we want things that will turn up to the clinic, we uh, are not usually going to be... Uh, interested in things that are too parochial as well, things that are just relevant only to the UK and that sort of thing. And uh, I, you know, I, th- I think it, as a as a journal, of course, we're following the lead of Brian Matthews' book uh, from some time ago, the classical practical neurology book, which Charles Warlow chose the name for, for the journal he started in 2001. So a very eminent history of the journal. I think then that um, the first thing we're going to talk about, Garant, is this um, paper, the um, the editorial on sodium valproate, which actually breaks a few of our rules because normally we don't look back at previous issues. This is from the February issue. Normally we don't deal with novelty, as I've mentioned. It's going to be, uh, and this is about something that happened in December, too late actually to be included in our last podcast. And we tend to steer away from things that are parochial and UK, but this is likely to go global. So the issue relates to sodium valproate, which um, we all have been well aware of the risks in women, but now there is a great concern that men may also need to be aware of issues relating to, firstly, fertility, testicular toxicity, and secondly, maybe bigger, would be the potential genetic problems which could lead to genetic problems in the offspring of men taking sodium valproate. So what we alerted the readership to with this editorial from Tony Marson was that the MHRA, that is the UK drugs regulator, has stipulated that we will need now to be much more careful about prescribing sodium valproate even for men under the age of 55, in fact needing two specialists independently to say that no better drug would be tolerated or effective, and also to get uh, men to sign an annual acknowledgement of risk form. So big changes, and we're promised that they might be happening very, very soon. And I think it's interesting, and Tony makes the argument very well in his article, that this is based on relatively little information. I mean, the data uh, in terms of the uh, testicular uh, toxicity, as you, you coin it, is relatively limited. It seems to be some degree of subfertility. And the data on genetic transference from one generation to another uh, seems to be based largely on animals rather than in humans. So, However, I think it's a, a fairly powerful signal that the drug regulators are willing to make really what are quite substantial recommendations on relatively thin evidence. And 
quite how that's going to impact practice is hard to, to be certain. Tony makes the, the, the very good point that management of patients with primary generalized epilepsy is so much better with uh, sodium valproate that where is the point of balance? And you know, can we get clarification as to um, how many other drugs you need to have tried first? Um, what alternatives need to be considered, and so on. So uh, I think yeah. this is this is in a state of flux, but we've we've signaled it up because it's a big issue that's coming, even if we haven't got an answer. Yeah, and and I think it's bound to impact services hugely. Actually, I mean, it, it, the, the, there are five or six times as many men in this age group as women. Therefore, the amount of concern that will inevitably come the way of specialist services, and it will overwhelm the services, I think, if it's suddenly launched. The other problem is, of course, it will detract people from starting sodium valproate, which, as you say, is the best drug. And you can't help feeling there's going to be some morbidity, even mortality, as a result of this decision. So I, I think that it's, this has still got a long way to play out, but I think if everyone's aware of it sooner... Uh, so much the better. Yeah. So let's move on to the April issue then. So the first paper we're going to discuss from this is functional cognitive disorders. And uh, so this is from uh, Laura McWhorter and Alan Carson in Edinburgh. And Garrett, you've been having a look at this. So, so this is, I mean, you mentioned at the beginning, we're keen to avoid novelty. And in many respects, this is the kind of novelty that we are quite keen on because it's not actually taking a new disorder or, or um, anything else, but it's it's really bringing together a whole series of strands of ideas into a quite practical set of uh, recommendations. So functional cognitive disorders, I mean, they use a, a term which is familiar to psychologists, um, uh, trans-diagnostic features. That's to say something which is common to a whole range of different disorders. And I think whilst um, you might think, well, I don't see patients with, I don't do a cognitive clinic, I don't see patients with functional cognitive disorders. The point they make is actually this is a common fellow traveler. So patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, with fibromyalgia, with pain syndromes will often say, and my memory's not very good. And sometimes that can be a prominent symptom, sometimes less so. And, and frequently, uh, patients with these kind of things will be able to give very specific descriptions in quite a lot of detail of the times they've forgotten some you know they've gone to the cupboard and they've forgotten to do this and so on and they're able to demonstrate quite clearly in their description this intrinsic uh, internal inconsistency that, that uh, they have a very dramatic reported problem with memory and yet they're demonstrating very effectively that they have a very effective memory and this phenomenon, I think, is something which is being more readily recognised. I mean, everyone's more familiar with dementia. People are more worried about it. There are more options for treatment. It's becoming more important to know what's an organic kind of dementia and, and what's not, and are there other markers and so on. And so recognising these other phenotypes, these other syndromic problems, is going to be very helpful to try and make sense. And uh, in the paper, they go through a discussion of these different things. Uh, they try and to have a bedside approach. They talk about the inconsistencies that I've talked about, and, and they contrast that with the inconsistencies, for example, that you might get with someone with Lewy body dementia who has a fluctuating uh, dementia. That's that's not what they're interested in. What they're interested in is, is this other problem. And, and there's another interesting phenomenon that if you do cognitive testing on these patients very often they have a good assessment of how they're getting on in the cognitive testing as they go along. But when you give them a global question about their, their cognitive function, they often find that um, they, uh, they underestimate their performance 
globally, even though they have made an appropriate assessment in bits as they've gone along. They highlight the fact that this is probably uh, frequently associated with disturbance with attention. And if you can actually help people understand that it's related to attention, then people can um, essentially address it and, and make sense of it. And they talk about other factors such as depression, which is obviously a well-recognized phenomenon, and a whole sequence of other phenomena. And they then take you through a very nice series of pragmatic ways to try and help patients. So how to actually try and work out within a specific individual which pattern of memory problem is difficult, which bits you can intervene with. So for example, you can take people off drugs which are sedative, you can treat migraine or other intercurrent illnesses. And broadly speaking, try and move this in the right direction. And I think this is a really nice characterization of something that will be very familiar to any clinical neurologist. And yet, probably people haven't put these patients together in this kind of way. Yeah. I mean, they come from the Scottish school, so that they're very keen on trials, and they're promising us trial evidence-based results in five to ten years. But whilst we're waiting, I think this is a very helpful start. Yeah, I, I quite agree. I mean, it's something that that uh, we all will recognise, even from our personal experience, that we'll, we'll all know about functional cognitive disorders. And uh, they put it together in, 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 a, in a neat way. And I, I love figure one, actually, this Venn diagram with uh, dementia in the middle and around the outside of dementia is minimal cognitive impairment. Around the outside of that is subjective cognitive decline. And then the functional cognitive disorders overlap. They overlap everything except the dementia right in the middle. And you've also got the markers of dementia, uh, the biomarkers that scattered amongst there, concentrated in the dementia, spreading out to the MCI, and presumably even some people with functional disorders would have would have those. So I think that's that's uh, quite a useful thing. But what I really like also is the table that uh, tells us the ways we distinguish functional cognitive disorders from Alzheimer's. That the as, as we know the the person with functional cognitive disorder will come alone uh, and we'll give a we'll, we'll talk for at least a minute and uh, when asked a question will um, as you say it, it give detailed accounts of their episodes of memory loss in quite a paradoxical way uh, there are also people who often report having amazing memory in the past and now it's a dreadful memory as if there are traits of perfectionism in the background so uh, it, it, it is all common sense it's all what we perhaps know already but uh, it really needed putting together. And the way that the Edinburgh School usually approach cognitive disorders and uh, functional disorders, part of the treatment is to explain the condition and uh, to show the working. And it's sort of rather like a Hoover sign. You, you explain to them, well, you know, you, you've uh, told us how you go into the bedroom and don't know why you're there one day, but you've described all of the build-up to it and you knew what happened afterwards. So uh, therefore, it's likely that your brain is actually... Uh, working all right. So that type of approach, I think, really, really useful. So like the paper, uh, it came on the back of a presentation by Laura at the ABN that was very well received. And uh, I think this is just what, what we need for a very good practical neurology paper. Absolutely. So Phil, what do we have next? What we have next, guide is um, genetics. Epilepsy genetics is next. And uh, it's a practical guide for adult neurologists it's by Owen Pickerel, who's a neurologist in Swansea, and Andrew Fry, who's a geneticist, clinical geneticist. And 
this is a paper I've been waiting for for a long time, though it came very quickly once we'd commissioned it, actually. But it shows the state of the art at the moment in a rapidly evolving field. We know and have known since Hippocrates that uh, a lot of epilepsy is genetically based, but it's still at a very early stage of characterizing everyone with epilepsy. The tiny minority of epilepsies are monogenic, and the large majority are polygenic, you know, several genes from either parent and this sort of thing. But uh, understanding the exact genetics of, a, of the epilepsy is important and can have practical outcomes. So, for example, the paradigm really is Drave syndrome, something that we used to think was just a childhood condition, but now is seen increasingly in adult clinics and recognized as a cause of both learning disability and resistant epilepsy, SCN1A, new mutation, of course. And um, the characteristic feature of Drave is the onset after six months of early life of being normal, the onset with some environmental factor like a fever or vaccination, whatever. And then from that moment onwards, the patient has bad epilepsy and progressive learning disability and uh, uh, is um, becoming less and less engaged. And uh, the fact there's no family history, it's obvious that you're going to think it may well be an environmental toxin uh, that led to it. But the practical outcome of diagnosing Drave is to avoid sodium channel blockers. The practical outcome for diagnosing GLUT1 deficiency syndrome would be the ketogenic diet. And uh, there are also situations where certain treatments would be a bad idea, valparate in POLG1 syndrome or the gene uh, HLA1502 for uh, uh, Han Chinese pe- people um, would need to avoid uh, carbamazepine. So there are, there are some practical outcomes here which are, which are really very important. And um, essentially, the, the paper also tells us when we should be sending for the genetic testing. And it's not yet for everyone, although it may be soon for everybody. But people, particularly with developmental and epileptic encephalopathies, those with intellectual disability alongside their epilepsy, And certainly if we diagnose a progressive myoclonic epilepsy or mitochondrial features, that sort of thing. And at the bottom of their list, they say drug-resistant epilepsy of unknown cause. So really that opens the door to to many, many people. There are clear benefits from having a definite diagnosis. Patients will definitely appreciate that. But there are drawbacks to doing genetics, including unearthing things that we didn't want to unearth, like non-paternity, like uh, genes for cancer or for uh, dementia that we might want, not want to find. And it might have implications for other family members. So it, it's a field that clearly benefits from the MDT approach. And these two authors have uh, uh, run an excellent service for that locally. So it's also quite helpful just to have this update, because as you say, it's a dramatically changing field. Um, the whole gene sequencing is now only recent. Well, it's essentially been available uh, for the last year or so. And I think people are still finding their way as to how to use it, which panels to use, and so on. And, and I think they give you it's quite a, a good snapshot of where we are in relation to that. I mean, I think the future is going to be different. I mean, you, you didn't mention with Drave syndrome, the cannabidiols, there are more specific drugs that you would get access to with certain genetic 
uh, mutations. So th- there is undoubtedly going to prove to be advantages in the future. I think this is a paper that is probably going to be updated probably in about four or five years because the changes are likely to come through. But I thought this was a very nice and helpful um, aid memoir just to, to point you in the right direction. You know, the cerebral malformations doing the scans and so on. Yeah, and uh, it, it features on our cover this time along with the pedigree of a family with uh, GEFS Plus, this genetic epilepsy with febrile seizures plus. And the key thing about that family tree is that the phenotype is so variable with a single gene disorder. There are clearly uh, genes that are influencing the manifestations of it. So some people have the full syndrome of bad epilepsy and febrile seizures plus, which is febrile seizures outside of the normal age range. Some have just febrile seizures plus, some have just febrile seizures. And uh, uh, so it's such a variability that it's going to clearly need a the, the help of a geneticist, the help of an MDT really to, to sort these things out. We can't just rely on the full phenotype for every case with a genetic disorder, even monogenetic disorder. So the next paper we're going to discuss is uh, Toxic Neuropathies, a Practical Approach uh, by Duncan Smith, Caroline uh, Kramatz, uh, Aileen Carr, Alexander Rosser and Mike Lunn from The National. And this is uh, our editor's choice. So this is actually going to be the subject of a uh, podcast with Amy Ross Russell separately. And so uh, you know, this is a very rich paper and our brief conversation today will only touch on some of the points. So we would very strongly recommend you listen to Amy's conversation. Neurotoxic, so toxic neuropathies, one sort of thinks back to the textbooks of, the, of yore and you know it's lead poisoning heavy metals this kind of stuff isoniazid odd drugs and so on and you think well you know that's a pretty dry subject you know surely that's not going to make much difference now and and actually what i think is remarkable and what they put together is the realization of quite how dramatic toxic neuropathies are particularly in neuro-oncology and the uh, neuro-oncologists particularly will be managing a lot of these patients frequently without necessarily having neurological input. Because for many of the agents that they're using, the, the neuropathies are the dose-limiting uh, predictable side effect, which uh, which they're battling with on a very regular basis. So I think it, it, it's, it's providing a, a very nice background. And I think... You know, I, their approach, again, is exactly what we want in practical neurology. We, we don't want um, uh, you know, lots of odd chemical formulas uh, that show exactly where it goes wrong. We, we need a, a practical approach, and, and they take that. They talk us through the history um, and uh, what to find on examination. There's a nice picture of Mies lines, which obviously is very much going back to the old textbooks, and I would imagine they had to hunt high and low to find that. But then we've got quite a, a range of, of tables which take you through the clinical phenotypes that you can get. Obviously, length-dependent are the, the most common, but there are a few other specific phenotypes that you can get with a sort of a Guillain-Barré-type um, phenomenon. And Guillain-Barré-type phenomenon can be related to um, uh, the BRAF MEK inhibitors. And the great thing about the MEK inhibitors is that they're an editor's joy because an MEK stands for a mitogen-activated protein kinase kinase. 
So when you, when you go to edit, you're convinced that these people have left too many kinases in, but it turns out that this is the correct name. And, you know, I looked it up, and there is a uh, map kinase, 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 which activates oh. some map kinase, kinase. So uh, <laughs> I think I don't know quite where it ends. <laughs> well, so, so there's, so there's a, you know, a, a map 2K and a map 3K, um, obviously set, uh, upset all the editors as we go along. But we've got those very nice things. And then uh, you've got a, a discussion, and in fact, quite a, a detailed discussion of the um, oncology-associated neuropathies. There's a phenomenon that I think neurologists will find useful to be aware of, I think, called coasting, which occurs particularly with the platinum-based uh, cytotoxic agents, which is where the neuropathy continues to get worse after the drug has been stopped, which clearly is, you know, would be ringing alarm bells on a sort of clinical basis. But if you know that this is a phenomenon, then that's clearly going to be helpful in trying to make sense of it. They talk about uh, a range of different things that you can try and use. For most part, the, the key thing is to identify and reduce and stop it. But in fact, some of the immune-mediated drugs that, that, that are used, there is an opportunity for treating the immunological. So there's the, the checkpoint inhibitors, for example, which interfere with the, the, the various stages of the immune cascade. If you develop a neuropathy in, as part of that, that can respond to steroids and immunosuppression. So you can actually uh, manipulate the distorted immune response which is what's producing the neuropathy um so clearly identifying and recognizing things does provide a much more active treatment option they, they touch on other things symptomatic treatment for example deloxetine seems to be uh, a favored agent for pain in the context of some of these agents um and then they go through the, the more conventional drugs that we're all familiar with um uh, obviously alcohol being very popular is that the right word nitrous oxide which obviously we've had quite a lot of stuff about recently and uh, the heavy metals which obviously we will all be remembering from mrcp and, and all those days of reading agatha christie and um, all about thallium toxicity and so on which fortunately yeah. most of us don't come across so i, I think this is this is a really helpful paper which i think is people will find much more interesting than they perhaps might think they would yeah, and uh, a worthy editor's choice, I think. And um, so, as you say, most toxic neuropathies are length-dependent sensory axonal. But the odd ones that are the rare ones, like the Guillain-Barre-like presentations, I mean, these ha have two things that go with them. Firstly, that they seem to respond to steroids, which we know Guillain-Barre uh, does not. And um, But secondly, we need to be aware of other causes of a neuropathy when there's an atypical presentation of a toxic neuropathy could there be another reason and uh, uh, particularly could the cancer but be playing some part in in it in this sort of thing so uh, the these um, Guillain-Barre ones come with the immune checkpoint inhibitors for melanoma typically and as we mentioned the the MAP 2K um, uh, uh, chemicals some other interesting aspects I noticed with pyridoxine deficiency. If you don't have enough, which is less than two grams a day, you get a neuropathy. If you have too much, 180 grams plus a day, then you get a, a neuropathy. And the treatment is to stop the drug. So that's fair enough. Um, another, another one was the treatment of leprosy with dapsone. So it seems that dapsone can also cause a neuropathy. But it's a motor neuropathy, unlike the sensory neuropathy of leprosy. So the authors tell us it's easy to differentiate. But uh, last time I saw leprosy was uh, many, many years ago. So I don't think I would find that so easy. 
The other reassuring thing I picked up was HIV. Very rare these days to get the HIV drugs causing a neuropathy. So any neuropathy there, uh, we need to look for another cause, including the HIV itself. Um, I loved reading about the arsenic. I also loved reading about the the fish, the uh, the the tetrodotoxin uh, from the puffer fish and the cigarettera toxicity, etc. So. Um, this is a lovely paper and written by the real experts, and uh, I would warmly recommend it to the readers. Excellent. Our next paper is uh, cerebrovascular disease in sickle cell disease, and this is from the group at St. George's Hospital in London, led by Anthony Pereira. And I have to say, uh, I was uh, I was shocked by my lack of knowledge on this condition, particularly when I learned this is the commonest genetic condition in the world. I put it into chat GBT, and it does indeed say it is the commonest genetic condition <laughs> in the world. So, so uh, Phil, you don't, you don't think it was quoting from our article? <laughs> <Might be. laughs> but uh, but there, but there we are. So I I I knew that uh, this condition causes pain, and you have to treat it with more and this sort of thing, and it causes uh, terrible blood clots. But I hadn't realized the prevalence of stroke is so high in this condition. And also, uh, I hadn't really worked out um, the difference between sickle cell disease and sickle cell anemia. So sickle cell anemia is the homozygous sickle cell, which is very severe. And sickle cell disease is the thalassemia and the sickle cell, a milder phenotype, but still comes under the rubric of sickle cell. In fact, they're all called sickle cell disease. So the confusion uh, goes on there a little bit in my mind. However, the risk of stroke in homozygous sickle cell disease is very high, as much as 24% by the age of 45. And uh, the risk in the thalassemia and sickle cell type is about 10% by the age of 45. So this is a condition that commonly causes stroke. And furthermore, the management of the stroke may be quite different. Of course, if there are a lot of vascular risk factors, then it just goes along the thrombolysis line and the control of vascular risk factors. But uh, for the most part, younger people with stroke, and it is a bimodal thing with children and then uh, younger adults, will need urgent exchange transfusion to try to get the level of the sickle cell hemoglobin down. And uh, the other thing is that prevention of stroke is also with uh, uh, ongoing exchange transfusions in, in younger people. It's something that probably lacks good randomized controlled trials, as far as I can see. But uh, uh, it is such a common condition worldwide, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East and uh, India, that around the world this is this is clearly a, a major condition, and uh, I, I've seen relatively little of it in in my practice. Incidentally, one of the curative treatments for sickle cell disease is allergenic stem cell transplant. Something we're going to be coming to to later on, but uh, where as opposed to, uh, th th this requires a closely related donor, uh, as opposed to the immune type, which is uh, which is what we're going to be mentioning in a moment. So uh, it again, MDT approach would be very important, I think, for individual cases. It's it's something that uh, I, I I've learned a lot from reading this paper, as you can tell, and yeah. uh, I, I commend it again. But for, Phil, I think that the other interesting thing is, is clearly um, because this is. A genetic disease which is quite strongly ethnically associated 
that there are pockets within the country where there is a very high density of patients with this condition. And frequently the haematologists will be leading and be very aggressively treating patients with exchange transfusions and so on to try and ex- avoid this. And, and neurologists in those areas and stroke doctors in those areas will clearly be very well exposed. Across the country, many patients in areas without high prevalence may be exposed to neurologists and stroke physicians with relatively little in the way of experience. So I think it's actually very important that we have access to something like this to help people in those circumstances uh, because clearly there are interventions which can make a big difference and yet uh, are they're not the conventional thing for people to do. So uh, I think something for everyone to, everyone to read just so, so when it turns up, they'll know what to do. Absolutely. It's, it's the right group to, to have written it as well. I mean, the, the, no, Anthony Pereira's group there, I mean, they, they are clearly seeing a lot more of this than, than most centres and uh, uh, have become real experts in this condition. So um, enjoyed reading the paper, definitely. So our next paper is autologous hemopoietic stem cell transplantation for immune-mediated neurological disease. What, how, who and why? By a, a really quite a wide range of doctors. Uh, Gavin Britton's led on it, but Alistair Coles, Gavin uh, Givanoni, Pali Morori, uh, Jackie Palace, a whole range of people, including Basil Sharrock, who's uh, perhaps done the, the largest study uh, looking at this treatment in MS. And, and you think to yourself, well, well, why on earth are we having a paper about bone marrow transplantation in, in a neurology journal? And clearly, this is something which it, for immune-mediated disease, in particular MS, uh, it seems to have a substantial role albeit one which is as yet not as well defined as one would like in the studies, which in fact are still ongoing. And and this is a very nice paper because they make the point that lots of people will be aware of it. Patients in the past will have often gone off to odd places to have uh, bone marrow transplantations for all sorts of odd things with very poor evidence and typically speaking, uh, no clear follow-up uh, and no clear strategy as to exactly what's happened with the bone marrow transplantation. And and. And in a way, that sort of has slightly undermined some of the reputation of, of what's an astonishingly uh, effective treatment. And what they, what they do is they take us through the mechanics of a, a bone marrow transplant so that, you know, from a naive neurologist, you would be aware of what to do. The fact that you have to turn on the bone marrow before you harvest it, you then give people essentially one form of chemotherapy or another, which can be mild, moderate, or, or dramatic, and then you basically reinfuse the um, harvested um, bone marrow, and then you stimulate it. And then essentially the reboot of the immune system allows your immune system to turn itself back on. Now, clearly, this is not a trivial intervention. It comes with risks, but actually the risks are much lower now than they were. And they quote a figure of 0.2% mortality, which is clearly... 0.2% 0.2% more than one would like, but but you know still a, a relatively safe procedure compared to many other things. And they also talk about you know what are what are the evidence? Um, you know what's what's the evidence? And the evidence that, that, that is mainly from uh, case series and with uh, a European uh, registry which follows up patients in these circumstances as well as some early phased studies. And for for patients with MS where they've got sort of 2,000 patients or so being followed up. Uh, freedom of activity with a mean follow-up of 34 months uh, of uh, getting close to 80%. And and this is for patients with high relapse rate um, typically being selected for this intervention. CIDP, which is severe neuromyelitis optica, stiff person syndrome, are other things where it's been tried. So this is something which is 
not entirely established because the data, the, the, the trial data is not as good as one would like. And yet it clearly seems to hold out r- remarkable promise and is something which is becoming more routine uh, in appropriate centers um, to, uh, uh, along with uh, the hematologists and the, the teams that are using it for, uh, for other indications. So I think this is this is something which we hope is going to become superseded relatively soon if the studies can actually um, report and if they show what we're hoping they're going to show. But this should provide a framework for people to talk about bone marrow transplantation in those exceptional circumstances um, where conventional treatment uh, is not proving to be sufficient and where this is an option. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 uh, one to have on the shelf that um, it, because patients patients are going to raise this issue, and uh, so we need an, an authoritative account from people with the experience and uh, the experience of managing difficult uh, immune disease. And we've got the reassurance really of the breadth of the authorship here, right across uh, you know m- or many centres, not just the uh, the Sheffield Centre, which has the highest profile for this. Um, uh, management. The, the problem, as they point out, is that if we don't discuss it, or we don't know enough about it, or we dismiss it because we've hardly heard of it, then patients will seek it out and will be uh, conned, essentially, into having uh, a treatment that is unnecessary and even given in an unsafe manner by the therapeutic tourism that is the, the risk of this. So they will go to unreliable sources. Yeah. So the neurologist should know about it, and uh, if if we get if, if we all read the summary and the key points in this paper, we would be a lot better equipped just to be able to direct patients to uh, the the right source of information. Uh, and and I think that they've got a very nice figure, which obviously explains the mechanics of it. A series of pictures, which is very familiar. And actually, I think if you were talking to a patient, you might want to show them the pictures too, because it. it, it encapsulates the idea yeah yeah it's a sort of paper you could you could share with your, your patients and um yeah that they they could take from it what they can and uh, as you say the picture really sums it up very nicely what what it involves it, it it is a bit invasive though isn't it and uh and i noticed that some cases including a case they include in it was a treatment naive patient with uh, very severe ms but hadn't really been through the usual gamut of dmts first of all so it is being targeted sometimes very early on and and that's why we need that's why we need the, the good quality trial data to be able to allow us to know whether that's the right thing or should those patients uh, be given you know um, the, the more powerful anti ms agents which are in fact sometimes used in part. So lalamtuzumab is used in some of the priming phases of the treatment. So it, they they acknowledge the imperfections, but this is a, a, a useful potential treatment. Yeah, lovely. Okay. Um, so the the next uh, one, Garrett, is uh, the uh, this paper on acyclovir induced neurotoxicity, which. Uh, comes from um, Freddie Vonberg in London and his colleagues and. Uh, I mean, what a super case report this is, uh, because it is telling us about the toxicity of a treatment that is very commonly given and is very widely regarded as not a particularly toxic treatment. And yet the toxicity itself is uh, something that might resemble the very condition that we're trying to treat. So the toxicity might end up being uh, resembling um, an encephalitis. I mean, there, there are several points in, the, in this paper. The first is that um, 
it occurs usually in people with renal failure who can't clear the acyclovir, and yet peritoneal dialysis doesn't seem to um, sort it out for them. Secondly, that the condition is very likely undiagnosed often and probably much more common than realised because the features, as I say, may superficially resemble viral encephalitis, although without the fever and the headache. And uh, that misdiagnosing it leads to actually increasing the treatment potentially and worsening the whole problem. Uh, and uh, furthermore, that acyclovir can be the cause of the nephrotoxicity that uh, uh, is, is leading to this. And that we diagnose it by clinical means, but then by this uh, CMMG, which is 9-carboxymethoxymethylguanine, which is the uh, metabolite of acyclovir. No good measuring acyclovir levels, incidentally. That, that doesn't correlate with the toxicity. So lovely case report. It's probably identifying a, an area where there is lots more cases and we just need to be aware of it and look for it. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. This, I mean, so frequently you'll have somebody who comes in with some confusion. They're given acyclovir. They seem to be getting more confused. Uh, all the tests are negative. Um, the patient's going into renal failure from the acyclovir because they're just a little dry and the acyclovir is crystallizing in the uh, kidneys. They seem to be getting worse. You think you're fretting. Is this a, an limbic encephalitis? Is it something funny going on? You stop the acyclovir, everyone gets better. Well, this is what's been wrong with them all the time. You've been causing the trouble. Um, and uh, I, I'm, I, I'm not sure that the the name of this chemical will trip off my tongue as well as it did for you. So I shall go with the CMMG as the option. But they were saying that it can be turned around in a couple of days. There's a, a, a national laboratory that will check it for you. And I think this is going to be um, really quite a game-changing paper. Yeah, and, and a nice touch they mentioned about Cotard syndrome. Apparently, acyclovir, the only drug with the side effect of Cotard syndrome, the, the feeling that you are dead. So there's an interesting little sideline. If you ever hear that from a patient, check the CMMG, ladies and gents. Okay, we're, we're moving on to another case report now, which is um, posterior spinal artery infarct. And this is from uh, Martin Bracewell in Bangor and his colleagues. So uh, you've been having a look at this, Garrett. So This is a nice paper, and it's, it's obviously highlighting the radiology, but the idea is that... Uh, Posterior spinal artery, we're all familiar with the anterior spinal artery infarct, the artery of Adamkovich producing a, a cord syndrome in the lower cord. But actually, um, you can get posterior uh, spinal artery infarcts, which are more frequently in the cervical spine. And the point they make is that they're actually very heterogeneous. Oftentimes, you're losing posterior column function and relatively little in the way of weakness. Uh, it can be slightly st uh, stuttering in onset. So as with this patient, they were sent home and then comes back in with things getting a bit worse. Um, the clinical skills of examining the different modalities of sensation are particularly important. And in fact, in reporting these kind of cases, frequently, you know, nobody's done the vibration sense and proprioception separately from the other things, which means that localization becomes really quite tricky. Whereas obviously, if you can use those things, it can become rather easier. Uh, what they do highlight is the fact that um, with the right kind of imaging and um, they've got a series of very nice pictures. You can highlight the abnormality on a DWI. And in fact, in this patient, as is often the case with posterior spinal artery infarct, the, the cause is actually from a vertebral um, uh, occlusion or dissection, which uh, blocks the spinal arteries which come off. And frequently, like the arteries of Adamkovitz, don't have um, uh, anastomoses, uh, so therefore produce uh, an ischemic event. 
uh, along the course. So I think it's a very nice case, uh, and again, to highlight something which is perhaps underdiagnosed um, and to illustrate uh, it quite nicely. Yeah, yeah, we have. You definitely have to look for this one hard, and it would be easy to uh, uh, to overlook the symptoms if they're trivial, like some uh, lateralized sensory loss, or it might well get attributed to a plaque or something like that. So, but to know that someone has had a, a vascular event, of course, has implications for the further management. Incidentally, uh, Garand, I mean, you mentioned vibration and uh, position sense, but I think that if a lot of these people might just get a numb patch, which will be dissociated but not suspended i presume it case for cotton wool testing do you think i know you're not a big fan of the cotton wool <laughs> i fear it's probably the only thing that people have in the a and e department frequently so they will deploy the cotton wool so anything is better than nothing <laughs> but it's not it's not desperately discriminatory no, that's it. Well, anyway, as long as they do it with the eyes open, then then we'll all be happy. Yeah. Okay. So then, Guy, we've both been looking at this wonderful, wonderful paper that is very moving, really. It's from uh, Rory Barnes and Jason Warren. Rory Barnes is, uh, is a patient, and it's called Shouting from Far Away, Three Poems About Living with Speechlessness. And it is a very, very poignant paper. It's open access, actually, so it's for everyone to read. And Rory Barnes has written three poems, three very short poems that um, all picture on, on one column. And um, they are they are moving to read, actually. And uh, I, 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 it, it, I, I really liked it. I, I, can I just indulge myself in just reading the, se- the second of the three poems about this? So... Around the table I clear my throat and everyone is silent to hear my words. I must take care to say something worth their effort and not to make noises that silence the conversation when I have nothing to say and pray they will understand my speech and not pretend they have when they have not. And it's that sort of thing. So, Gareth, I think you spotted something in the national news about this. So, I mean, this is obviously, um, I mean, a slightly unusual paper for us to publish uh, Jason Warren approached us because uh, Rory Barnes, who's a poet, um, had written these poems, and Jason thought that they produced a beautiful illustration of this really cruel form of aphasia. So, uh, um, a primary progressive non fluent aphasia, uh, a primary progressive apraxia of speech, where the actual production of the speech is the thing that's uh, that goes. So uh, Rory writes these things uh, using his iPad and will communicate that kind of way, but actually the act of speaking is uh, lost to him. And Matthew Paris and the Times had spotted this, and uh, I think any anyone really uh, reading these poems will remember this condition in a way that they wouldn't, uh, even if they've never been aware of it before, um, because this is such a potent illustration of the predicament that he finds himself in, so I would I would thoroughly I would thoroughly recommend people reading it and uh, to try and help characterise this very difficult condition. So thank you to Jason and thank you to Rory. Yes, and it's been in the news a bit because Bruce Willis, of course, age sixty-seven, has primary progressive aphasia, and so it's a condition that the world will be hearing more about. And uh, so I, I think that this this poetic way of uh, describing the predicament that um, people uh, will find themselves in in this awful condition is so well illustrated here. So uh, I share my thanks to them both for, for sharing this with us. So, ladies and gents, if you've enjoyed the podcast, 
please also log in to Amy Ross Russell, who will be uh, talking with the authors of the Toxic Neuropathy paper. But we've also got some exciting news about a, a third podcast. Garant, you're going to share that with the with the listeners. So, for the most part, the, the main podcast uh, will discuss larger papers and the editor's choice is inevitably one of the reviews. But we recognise that actually a lot of the time some of the most valuable material in the journal is actually the case reports that people have submitted. And we've asked Martin Turner to take a lead in producing a, a third podcast, which is actually based around those case reports and discussing what can be learned from them with uh, colleagues. And, and it's some, a format that we will be developing but we will be hopeful people will find it interesting and informative and will help bring out some of the lessons uh, that I, hopefully people are gaining anyway, but from the case reports, which obviously are a rich part of the journal. So we very much look forward to seeing how that goes. Thank you. And so from both the editors of Practical Neurology and uh, for the time being, we'll, we'll chat again next issue in two months' time. So thank you. Thank you. Cheerio. Cheerio.